Can it be that he would love a sinner such as I, a soul such as I? And then that song is, my Jesus, I love thee. Appropriate response to when we perceive his love for us. Romans chapter number 2, we delve back into this first section dealing with a moralistic or uh, yeah, yeah, moralistic uh, hypocrite, and uh, we're going to finish off through verse 16. You see on your outline there, and we have a few extra outlines. Brother Doug's going to make his way down the, the middle here. If you need an outline, we've seen the charge against the moralistic hypocrite. We've seen the conduct of the moralistic hypocrite, and we've begun to see the case against the moralistic hypocrite, and uh, that's a lot to say. And uh, uh, so it is, as we've seen, and we've delved into this um, uh, passage. We've already seen the fact that um, how he puts himself as judge. Now we start to look at, you see letter A there on your outline, and uh, we fill these in. I better turn on everything. And uh, letter A, uh, we see the simple reality that his evaluation of now the judgment meted out by God is according to truth. And we saw this there in verse 2, but we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth. And uh, when the truth is brought into evidence, we observe that no one gets away with anything. And uh, like the mom or the teacher with eyes in the back of her head, amen? And uh, even more so, uh, you just don't get away with anything when the truth is known and exposed. And so it is. Uh, The second thing we saw from the same idea is that the truth naturally judges the secrets of men. And so all that is exposed. We'll hit a little bit more on that tonight. We'll see another verse that kind of aims at it a different way, but same thing. Uh, God has not forgotten or overlooked uh, one's every thought. And so even the thoughts that we've had, he, he doesn't forget them, and we'll be judged according to that. And so we understand that. Now we want to delve into here, verse, starting really with verse number 6, the next means of evaluation. The next means of evaluation. So first it's according to truth. Now we look at verse 6. We'll see the second thing. Says this, speaking of God, the judgment of God, verse 5 ends with it, verse 6, who will render to every man according to his deeds. Well, according to one's deeds is what we see here in letter, uh, letter B. So what is this not teaching? Well, it's not teaching salvation by works. We understand that. Uh, that one's deeds declare him righteous for salvation is not what Paul's conveying here. Obviously, such an idea would go against the whole of Scripture, specifically against the whole of these first three chapters that Paul has already alluded to some things. What's important as we travel throughout Romans, as we even study the book of James, too, as we have just finished up, when it starts talking about works and that our works are going to be evaluated, that that our works, our deeds are going to be judged, we have to understand there's a differentiation that takes place. The Bible differentiates between judgment and salvation and how or in how they relate to one's works and deeds. So this is important truth when studying the Scriptures. It's one of those things you want to have in the back of your mind every time you read a passage. When it starts talking about judgments and works and deeds, we have to understand and make sure we keep in there in the back of our minds, the Bible differentiates this way, salvation and judgment, in the relation to works and deeds. We, it's simply this, works and deeds are indeed one of the criteria upon which judgment is meted out. We understand that everything that we're going to have done, we've committed, we're going to stand before God and we'll receive in our bodies that which is, uh, we'll find out if it's wood, hay, and stubble, if it's precious stones, silver, and so forth. We'll find that out. So there is the aspect of, of works and deeds, how we live this life, are part of the criteria for judgment. 
but works and deeds never me uh, never merit one salvation. Salvation is by grace through faith alone. So anytime we come to a passage such as this, we have to immediately remember, okay, he's not talking about salvation here. He is talking about judgment, and everybody, as we'll see in this passage, everybody faces judgment. But my friend, I sure am thankful tonight that our salvation, our eternal future, does not rest upon our works and deeds. It only rests upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that is what we must remember as we delve into this passage and others similar to it. So what is Paul doing? Well, he's emphasizing and explaining several things. First of all, he's emphasizing that all of us will stand before Jesus Christ, will stand before God, whether we are Jew or Gentile, whether we are righteous or wicked, whether we're believer or unbeliever. The main verse of this section is really verse 11. Jump down there. Look at verse 11 with me. For there is no respect of persons with God. So here it is in the middle of a section dealing with judgment. Can I tell you, my friend, uh, even believers are going to be judged. We'll see that tonight. We understand that truth. It's really what he was making a point at. You moralistic hypocrite, Paul's saying, you're going to stand before God and still be judged. They're going to object. Okay, in a court of law, if we go back to our our picture here, uh, you can see the moralistic hypocrite. He's going to keep objecting. I object. On what basis? Well, I've lived a pretty good life, so I I shouldn't be judged. Well, Paul's going to expose that as erroneous thinking. Every objection that anybody can bring in the court of God that says, wait a minute, I shouldn't be judged, whether it be for salvation or whether it be just for my deeds and works, every objection that is brought, can I tell you, and use legal uh, jargon, it's overruled. And Paul explains why in this passage some of the more prolific objections that are offered by people hold no merit. They hold no merit. And so he'll, uh, he'll expose some of them for what they are. See, this judgment that Paul speaks of in these verses, it will take into account our works and our deeds, and they'll be evaluated, tested, and measured. For some, this judgment spoken of in these few verses will be welcomed. Uh, boy, we're looking so that we won't be ashamed. We saw it on Sunday night. Uh, we're going to live our lives. We're going to purify ourselves in First John there so that when he does appear, we don't have to be ashamed and we can be confident when we stand before God. I hope tonight, Christian, that you are looking forward to God's judgment, to Christ's judgment. I hope you're looking forward to the day that you and I will stand before Christ, that it will prove that all the time we spent here on earth, uh, my free time, my, my times of service, was done with the right heart of right motive and was done unto the glory of God because I'll tell you my friend if that is true of you and I we don't have anything to fear when we stand before God our lives our deeds and our works will be such that stands the fire the test of the fire some will welcome that judgment there'll be others who if we might put it this way their deeds will be mostly good and some bad for others their deeds and works are their greatest condemnation Uh, boy you look at their life and you don't want to be them as they stand before jesus christ because they have lived wickedly ungodly filthy lives they've lived unto self and they'll be judged for that again we're not talking salvation we're just talking standing before god and being judged um goes on and we understand here's a simple truth there's some 
Again, who will welcome this judgment simply because they have lived their lives, they've committed these deeds and works upon a foundation of faith and trust in Jesus Christ, a relationship with Him. In other words, they have obeyed the truth of the gospel in faith. Uh, They have followed exactly what Christ said. It's important to note, as we consider this passage, we have not yet arrived at the all-inclusive charge that is levied at all of mankind. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We're building up to it. So let's understand, you and I find ourselves in, in maybe what we might call at the beginning of a court case, the, the prosecution is kind of giving a taste of what is to come. They're kind of starting to build their case. Uh, it, it's opening remarks in a court le, uh, terminology. And so the prosecution, Paul is giving the opening remarks and in introducing the case and telling us, here's what we're going to hear. It's what I like about Paul. In these first few chapters of Romans, he gives us little bits and pieces. We might call them teasers of things that he's going to talk about more exponentially in future passages. He's going to elaborate on. So like that prosecution who will get up and they're talking to a jury and they're saying, you'll see in this case, we'll, we'll prove how the defendant is guilty. We'll prove what he has done to be guilty. We prove that he was found here. The evidence will point to. That's literally what Paul is doing here. He's presenting and giving us a little bit of a look into the case that's going to flow and be spread out across the rest of the book of Romans. Yet we must understand as we talk about this passage, we haven't gotten to that great charge where he says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Uh, He's working up. The prosecution is working up to that culminating conclusion there in chapter 3. So in sight in this section is simply our deeds and how they will be judged whether we are saved or not. Now look at verse 7. Let's, let's be introduced to first his first concept. He says here, verse 7, To them, so he's addressing himself to one group of mankind, to them who by patient continuance in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, comma, he is promised eternal life. Verse number uh, 10, But glory and honor and peace to every man that worketh good, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. So these two verses, we have a description of those who know Christ, who pursue glory and honor and peace. They have literally pleased God with their living, their works and their deeds. As they have received new life in Christ, they have worked hard at pleasing Him. They will be rewarded and rewarded well. That's what Paul's alluding to. Again, Paul expounds upon this concept later on in the book, but he's just explaining little things here and there to kind of whet our appetite to kind of, again, give us a teaser. Now, this group is contrasted with those who are living in such a way that points to them being lost. They don't know God. They didn't accept chapter 1 and the revelation of God and creation and their own conscience. They have rebelled against God. They have rejected God and His truth. Paul describes that in verse number 8 and 9. Look with me there. But unto them that are contentious. Now that's a great description, isn't it? They're fighting with God. They're fighting against God. But unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth. Now that's a key statement. They don't obey the truth. They've rejected it. But obey instead unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. 
Tribulation and anguish will be upon them, upon every soul of man that doeth evil, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Again, verse 11, he's reiterating with that he's talking to everybody. He's no respecter of persons uh, in this statement. So what's interesting, we know this, that Paul expounds upon this truth later. So what he presents to you and I in verses 7, 8, 9, and 10, two different people are expressed to us, those who are living lives, righteous lives, built upon the foundation of relationship with Christ, and those that are living lives where they obey unrighteousness and wickedness. They've rejected God. Again, he will explain later in the book to whom he refers to in these passages. The one being saved, the one being unsaved. The one who is a slave to sin, the other one who is a willing servant of God. Though he does not disclose it fully here, he's putting out the case. Something that he will explain in further depth. The telling statement now in this verses 8 and 9 is that one that we emphasize. Where it says that they do not obey the truth. And it produces a living that is characterized by unrighteousness and wrath. See, one of these snippets that Paul is giving us is something that he speaks of in Romans 6, 7, and 8 and following is this thought here. You see it in your outline. Uh, God, excuse me, let me back up. God establishes his impartiality when it comes to judgment. Verse 11, and also these two verses where he says unto the Jew first and then to the Gentile also. So he, he establishes his impartiality and judgment. But notice this. Paul introduces this concept that he explains in chapter 6 and following. The test of our profession is our lifestyle. Verses 7 and 10, thereby describing someone who's put their faith in Jesus Christ. It is our manner of living. So he establishes even here, listen, God's going to judge everyone, but he'll even judge those who are his, are living righteously, but as he judges them, they'll gain reward. They'll get reward. So he's throwing the concept out. It's something I like about Paul. He just throws out ideas, the thoughts, little snippets, and then he develop it, develops it within a letter or within a, that he writes a book as we see it in an epistle. And so I'd encourage you, when you read any of the Pauline epistles, that you think and say, okay, Paul often will do that in his writings. He'll introduce thoughts in just little bits, and then he develops it as the book goes along. It's quite interesting to learn some of the writers of the New Testament, their tendencies and the things that they do within the books and letters they write. I know I'm getting a little deep, but I'll tell you it's fun when you start thinking about it, and you see it in different parts, and boy, you understand how he writes, uh, how someone conveys and communicates things. It's quite interesting. But Paul does this, and he's saying simply this, our manner of living then will in turn, whether we are saved or unsaved will be judged as God promised. Several passages. We know these well, but let's remind ourselves. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 9 through 10. Wherefore we labor, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. That requires judgment. Are you accepted or not? For instance, okay, if you go to the grocery store and you stick in a credit card, you're hoping it gets accepted. Amen? You don't want to see rejected, okay? Or the person telling you, I'm sorry, that's been declined. Right? So it, being accepted requires judgment. So in this passage, Paul speaks to, as he develops in the next verse, <laughs> are you accepted? We want to be accepted of him. We want what we've done to please him. So every day of our lives, whatever we have left on this sphere and what we have already lived, we want it to be pleasing in God's sight. For we must all, here's why he talks about being accepted, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. 
We know this. He's speaking to believers. Those of us who have a relationship with Christ, and yet we are going to be judged. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter number 2. That every man will receive the things done in his body. According to that he hath done, has committed, have lived, how you've lived your life. Notice it. Whether it be good or whether it be bad. There are misconceptions of the judgment seat of Christ. Well, only our good's going to be mentioned. I, that's not what this verse says. <laughs> Things will be judged whether it's good or bad, how we've lived, our deeds and our works. Now, it's not for condemnation. It's certainly for reward. But my friend, in order to do that, you've got to look through everything. Amen? If you were to promise your child, okay, you bring home your report card for every A that you have, um, I'm going to give you a dollar. For every D or less, I'm going to take away a dollar. Okay, you think of it in that sense, and you, they bring home the report card. You have to separate it, whatever it is, the F's, the C's, whatever the case is, the B's and the A's. You have to look at it and judge it. Whether you say, hey, I'm not even going to take away a dollar or whatever, I'm just going to give you a dollar for an A. That's it. You still have to separate the A's from the B's and the A's from the C's and the A's from the D's and the, whatever degree they have. Okay, whatever grades they get, all right? The A's from the F. You still have to judge that to find out, okay, let's do this. Same thing is true with the judgment seat of Christ. Reality is we're going to give an account. Everything in our lives, our deeds and our works, whether it be good or whether it be bad, we'll appear before Christ to give an answer for. But we are not the only ones. We know this well. Revelation chapter 20 and actually verses 12 and 13. 13 is up here on the board behind me. And the seed gave up the dead where, which were in it. And the death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, not necessarily here at this moment, about what they have done with Christ. No, they were judged how? According to their works. Now, here's an interesting little tidbit. In the Greek, the term for works here, back in verse 12, which I didn't quote for you, but it's also the same Greek word translated works there, is the exact same Greek word that Paul uses in Romans chapter 2 in verse 7, where we have uh, the word doings, if you're there in Romans 7, where it says, um, to them who by patient continuance and well-doing... And then down in verse 6, the word deeds. Or up in verse 6, excuse me, who will render to every man according to his deeds. Same Greek word. Same challenge for us is that uh, here we are, and the idea is certainly that, that th these passages are connected. Paul's alluding to something that he speaks up in uh, Corinthians 5, and then also what is spoken by John the Revelator in Revelation. So what are we establishing? Well, the verses and many others establish that the deeds of every person will be judged. We will be held accountable for them, whether that means, now, now let's develop this, whether it means for the unsaved degrees of punishment or if it means missing out on rewards, having sorrow in front of Christ because we wasted years and days and weeks, opportunities, uh, energy, whatever the case may be. Uh, that's what we're going to see. You see, what do you mean, Pastor, concerning degrees of punishment? There's nothing concretely in the Bible that speaks of degrees of punishment in hell, but I'll tell you, there's many passages that lend themselves to believing that. Uh, for instance, Christ's own words. He said this in Luke chapter 10, verse 14. But it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. That's a great statement. There's several other verses. In fact, I think verse number 12, he says something similar to a different place. This one was, I believe, was written to Bethsaida and Chorizah uh, um, or uh, Chorazin. And uh, it's saying, listen, it's going to be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon. 
And the other one, he says it's going to be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah. You might remember that passage. What is he saying? Well, in that passage, what we understand, Christ is saying, listen, I've come and visited you. The Savior has walked among you. I've preached, I've healed, I've taught, and you still rejected me. You've had so much revelation and so much light of the gospel given to you in the light of God, and you have rejected it. Therefore, it is going to be more tolerable for these people that never had Jesus Christ walk in their midst than it is for you. Strong statement, isn't it? We'll tie it in a little bit later as we see Paul uh, thinking or, or expressing the same idea. This passage also solidifies the teaching of the whole New Testament, establishing that Jesus Christ brings a person to light from darkness in salvation. And then he enables them to walk in the light as he is in the light. In fact, see, what, what Paul's saying in Romans chapter 2, you ought to be able to live right. How can you live right? The only way that you can live right in such a way that pleases God, can I tell you, is if you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you. How do you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you? You put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You have a relationship. So Paul is, again, he's given us a little clue here because he gets to this at the end of Romans. He says, listen, the only way you're going to defeat the flesh and the carnality that's within us, that old nature, is by being a new man in Jesus Christ. It's the only way that you can live like verse 7 and verse 10. And so we know this and understand this simple truth. A moral revolution, a moral revolution takes place when I trust in Christ, when I am saved, and I am no longer a slave to sin. That's that word obey, or the same idea, excuse me, as the word obey in verse 8, where they did not obey the truth, they obeyed wickedness. That's the idea of being a slave there. Uh, the slave to sin, he gets in this in chapter 6 too. I don't want to jump ahead of myself, but chapter 6, he says the same thing. But rather we are a willing servant of the Lord, the Lord who set me free. So when I come to put my faith and trust in Christ, Paul is establishing even here in Romans chapter 2. The great news is, my friend, now you don't have to live unto sin. You can live unto Jesus Christ. You can choose to be a willing servant. This moral revolution that takes place at salvation now enables me to live unto God. See, true righteous deeds flow from a heart that has been rendered righteous by Jesus Christ in salvation. That new man is enabled to live in such a way that pleases God. So no matter who we are, if we have come to trust in Christ, the great truth is that now we can live for him. That we can fulfill such verses, whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Be spirit-filled. The uh, only way you can do that is if you have the Spirit indwelling you as a believer. So now it opens up the door, as Paul alludes to in the rest of Romans, that we can live no longer unto ourselves, but unto Him who died for us. And Paul is now just uh, throwing this in little by little. Um, sometimes overwhelming in all that he puts in some of these verses and chapters, but it's great truth uh, that he is exposing us to. He's saying simply that every person's deeds, though not judged for the matter of salvation, will be judged. Uh, on uh, Every person will be judged on our deeds. They'll be manifested, whether that's at the great white throne judgment, which is for unbelievers, or the judgment seat of Christ for every believer. However, you and I well know 
A Jew reading this letter from Paul, a moralistic hypocrite, would have looked at this and said, oh yeah, I'm verse 7, I'm verse 10, I, 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 I work good. And he may have put it in the balances and he may have made the objection, well, my life looks pretty sharp. I'm a, from the outside, I have it together. A Pharisee reading this would say, oh yeah, I've kept the law. Paul, you said you've kept the law, you're blameless, so am I. I am, boy, when I'm, when I'm held up to the law, uh, boy, I have everything together on the outside as Christ called them whited sepulchers. So they are. So their objection here would have been, hey, I'm outwardly righteous. I, I work good, as it says in verse 10. I'm exempt in one way or another from the judgment. I have God's law, or in our modern day, I have God's word, and so therefore I'm exempt from here. But that's exactly why Paul adds verse 12. Notice after that objection, he'll, he'll come to them and he'll say this. Ah, For as many have sinned without the law, shall also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law, shall be judged by the law. What's Paul doing? He is now in these next few verses introducing the moralistic hypocrite, the Pharisee, the Jew, uh, the believer possibly that thinks he has it all together and just because he's saved he can live any way he wants to. He's exposing them to this reality. Wait a second, you're still going to stand before God. And there's a principle that Christ began teaching that's going to come to roost on the day you stand before the judgment seat of Christ. What is that principle? Well, Christ often said it. Um, but we find it in Luke chapter 12. Will you turn there with me? Luke chapter 12. Hold your spot in Romans. Luke chapter 12. We'll look near the end of the chapter. It's a long chapter. We'll look down to verse number 47. We have a parable. Christ is speaking of verse number 42. The wise or faithful and wise steward. Of his Lord. What do we know? That it is required of a steward to be found faithful. Paul wrote that, I believe. And the fact is this that we are challenged to be stewards of what we've been given in Christ. Our relationship, the days, the years, the, all the, the knowledge and truth we've been given. We're called to be wise and faithful stewards. So he's really speaking to someone of the household of faith. Now jump down to verse 47. And that servant, now notice this statement. I want you to hang on to this. And that servant which knew his Lord's will, and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. So even in this passage, we're going to be introduced to this idea of degrees and sometimes of judgment. Notice it, verse 48. But he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall be much required. And to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask the more. Now here's our statement. You see, Paul is addressing something he knows very well. He was a Jew. And the Jew, by nature, by heritage, by being a Jew, they had special advantages when it came to the revelation of God. It's all over this book. We can't argue with that. We can't deny it. They literally had the oracles of God, Paul writes later. They had the blessings of God that were abundant in their nation. That was their advantage. And Paul will, over the next few chapters, he will address that. In fact, he'll address their accompanying pride and their boasting 
in the fact that they were Jews. Look at verse 17 with me, if you will. We'll get into this section here next week. But verse 17, he begins, Behold, thou art called a Jew, and restest for righteousness and everything else in the law, and makest thy boast of God literally in the law. Verse 18 of Romans chapter 2. And knowest his, what's the next word? And knowest his will. What did we read just in Luke chapter 12, verse 47? The servant, the steward who knew the will of God and prepared not himself was beaten with many stripes. They were held to a higher standard. Now look down here at verse number, chapter 3, verse 1. He continues it. What advantage then hath the Jew? What profit is there of circumcision being a Jew? Notice verse 2. Much every way. Chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. Here's a great statement. And I'll tell you, my friend, tonight it bears uh, credence for us to listen to this because we find ourselves in similar shoes as the Jews. We are very blessed in the revelation we have from God. At our hands and that we are exposed to, boy, God is good to us who are living right now. In America, whatever, however you want to describe it, the reality is, man, we are very blessed. Hear what he is saying. With greater advantage, there is less excuse, and then obviously, consequently, there is greater guilt. It's further proof of God's impartiality. Now, catch this. There might be times that you, your kids are doing something they ought not to do. One of them you told specifically to their face, don't do this. And, and, uh, and the other one, they should have overheard you. Maybe they weren't in the room, whatever. And yet both deserve punishment because they did wrong. But I'll tell you, the one who you looked in the face and you said, do you understand me? And they say, yes, sir, I understand. And they go off and do it. I'll tell you, they're in, uh, they're in for worse uh, judgment. That's literally what he's saying here. Listen, the Jews are in a privileged position. So he adds to this explanation of verse 11 about the impartiality of God in judgment. He says this. He takes into account the varying spiritual light and revelation that a person has received. And he meets out degrees of judgment accordingly. That's what a concept and a principle throughout the New Testament here. It doesn't say that someone is not worthy of judgment. I think that's a key thing for us to emphasize. But he's talking about levels and degrees of that judgment. In this case, as he just describes in verse number 12, there are those that have the law, those that do not, the Jews and the Gentiles. For the Jews, their standard is high because why? They've been blessed with the great revelation of God through Abraham and Isaac and, and so forth. And then obviously Moses comes along with the law. The, it was the nation of Israel that had prophets and they had priests. They had the very temple of God. Uh, they had the, the instruments by which God dictated things to them. I mean, they were blessed. God even spoke to them from a mountain. You think of the Jews, you think of a privileged blessed people who had a great privilege and responsibility all at the same time and what is god saying they will be judged to the degree they have received what was the great fault of the jews well they would say this look look at us we're awesome we have the law it's like somebody who carries around a bible and though they're carrying around a bible they still end up in hell 
We have the law. I have God's word. I go to church every day. Can I tell you, it is horrible, terrible for someone in a jungle somewhere who's never heard of the Bible, who's never heard of a church, to die without putting their faith and trust in their creator and gaining heaven that way. But I'll tell you, it's so much worse for someone to go to hell from a pew of a church. And that is literally what Paul is condemning the Jews for. They had the law of God. And what was their boast? (laughs) We have the law of God. In fact, what did they say in verse 17 or 18? We know the will of God. Can I tell you, knowing the will and doing the will of God are two completely different things. You have to know it to do it. I comprehend that. But reality is, it will do you no good just to know it. You must do it. And that's exactly what Paul says to the Jews or the moralistic hypocrite in verse number 13. Look at it. It's a parenthetical phrase. So he's explaining what he just said in verse 12. Look at the beginning of verse number 13. He says this, For not the hearers of the law are justified before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. You see the point he's making? You understand what he's saying? Listen, you, you might have it, and you might have sat there in the temple and heard it. You might say, well, I'm a Jew, and we have Moses, and we have the prophets. They like to say that often, didn't they? We read that. They like to boast of, uh, of their lineage and their heritage being a natural-born Jew. It's very interesting that in just a couple chapters, what does Paul say? Paul says, listen, they that are all of Jews naturally are not Jews. And then he goes to on from which we derive one of our children's songs. You ever sing, Father Abraham had many sons. You ever get tired and do calisthenics like that? Right arm, left arm. you never done it? Do you want to do it right now? I'm just kidding. We're not going to do it. Where do we get that? We get it from Romans. Paul says, if you trusted in Christ, if you have the same faith as Abraham, you're a child of Abraham. He's making a point to the Jews. Just because you have it doesn't make you. And I'll tell you tonight, my friend, just because you hold a Bible, just because you go to a Baptist church, it doesn't guarantee you of heaven. And it doesn't, even if you are saved and you carry the Bible and you go to a Baptist church, it does not exempt you from judgment. We're all going to stand before God and give an account of our works and our deeds. Paul's making a very clear, poignant Uh, point to these Israelites. Great truth all the way through. Notice it, if you will, with me as we think about this truth. um, uh, Verse number uh, 13. So what does that make them if they're just hearers and not doers? Well, it makes them guilty and not justified. Literally, he's telling them, you're going to perish with the law Uh, you're going to be held to the high standard of the greater knowledge of the law. So when some of these Jews, these moralistic hypocrites within the Jewish nation, when they read this, it would have shocked them out of their socks. (laughs) The law, now get this, the law that they boasted of, the, the thing that they said, we have Moses and we have the prophets and we have God's law, the very thing that they boasted of did not serve to make them that much more special and blessed as they thought it did. Do you understand that it literally served to make their guilt that much greater? The very law they boasted in was the thing that said, okay, you're going to be held to this kind of standard when it comes to your works and your deeds because you had the privilege of knowing the heart and mind of God. And they were like, ha, 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 Gentile, we've got God's law and you don't. 
That's what literally the Jews, how they live. And Paul's saying, whoa, 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 whoa. You know that thing you're boasting in? That's going to cause you to be held to a higher standard. It makes your guilt that much greater. Man, I'll tell you, that would have floored some of them. I do believe that as a Jew in that day, a Pharisee or somebody read this letter from Paul, they probably got up tight and they probably stood up and walked around. They got furious at reading this truth. Because Paul was what? Leveling the field where? At the cross of Calvary. You don't have a special place. You're not something special because you're a Jew. Number one, you still need to come to Jesus Christ in faith. Number two, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew and it doesn't even matter if you're saved. Your works and your deeds are going to be judged. So Paul's kind of leveling the field here. It's not just the sinner who needs to worry about his wayward ways. It's also a Christian who needs to worry about how he lives his life. Paul's making several points all in the same passage. It's quite interesting if you think about it, all the things that he is hitting upon. And I'll tell you tonight, my friend, listen carefully, the truth ought to scare some of us tonight. As you and I sit here, we have God's Word in our hands. Many of us have many copies in, in our home. We have sat under teaching and preaching of God's Word on innumerable times, an innumerable amount of times. And when it comes to standing for Jesus Christ and we have to give an account of what we have done with our lives, the truth that we have heard, our works and our deeds, whether they line up with the heart and the mind of God, um, we can be certain that this principle of judgment will come to play. To whom much is given, much more is required. My friend, there may be a Christian who, stands, who goes to the judgment seat of Christ, and, and they were saved, yet they never had a Bible in their own language. Rarely, if ever, did they get to hear outside the one time of salvation. And then you and I come... We live in what I believe to still be the greatest nation on earth. You and I enjoy freedoms that most nations, if not all nations, don't even get to enjoy. We get to walk around carrying this. We get to meet together and assemble. We get to have as many copies as we want. We can go to a Walmart store and buy a Bible. You know how many places that's unthinkable? You know how many places it's unthinkable for you and I to have a Bible app on our phone? What did I share with you a few weeks ago? In China, you can't even buy a Bible online anymore. Here you and I are, and we are so blessed. But I'll tell you, my friend, that principle ought to always ring true in our ears. To whom much has been given, much more is required. You and I have a great privilege, just like the Jews. And yet, we will be held accountable. We teach our children this. With great privilege comes great responsibility so it is true for you and i this is a principle straight from scriptures and so we ought to be challenged tonight what does god know well god knows all that you have heard in the preaching and teaching of his word he knows all that you have read of his mind and desires in his word of how a christian life should look he knows the ready access that you and I have to church and we have to his word. He knows the truth that you and I have been confronted with time and time again. And so we stand in the same position as the Jews. Thankfully, it's not for salvation, but it's that we'll stand before Jesus Christ and give an account for what we have done with these, our lives. We have much to account for. 
So, someone might say, oh, oh, what about the Gentile? They don't even have the law. They don't have the word of God. Shouldn't they get a pass because they don't have the blessing of the law? Well, that's where Paul, in this parenthetical phrase, he answers that. Look at verse 14 with me. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves. These, again, this parenthetical phrase is doing what? Explaining verse 12. He just got done explaining what well, those who are under the law will perish in the law. Those who don't have the law will perish apart from the law. This is, he explains, they're a law unto themselves. Verse number 14, verse 15. Which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. One of the best parenthetical phrases in all the Scripture. Paul explains this simple truth. He goes back to incorporate the things we discovered in chapter 1, that all men have the natural revelation of God in uh, the whole of creation. They have the testimony of right and wrong in their hearts and in their consciences. Therefore, they are guilty, and they are able to be held accountable. Hey, there's a couple things that can happen in a court case. First of all, sometimes when someone commits a murder or some kind of uh, heinous crime, they will take him to the court first, not to be tried for the act, but they will uh, hold him for trial and test him try him to see if he is competent to be tried competent do they understand the charges one of the things that paul is establishing for through these first few chapters is listen every man is without excuse they can look at creation the conscience within makes them without excuse the second thing that sometimes happens uh, the prosecution will say i just don't know if we have enough evidence we don't have enough to charge them and so what will they do they'll take it to a grand jury present it and then they'll decide if they hold them over for trial do we have enough evidence do we have enough in other words uh, we'll try them to see their culpability their ability to be charged um and literally that's the question here. What about the Gentiles? They don't have the law. Can they be held accountable? Well, he goes back to chapter 1. He says, listen, they are a law unto themselves. They have the law written in here. Uh, they themselves either excuse themselves or accuse. It's quite an explanation by Paul. Very, um, very much legal in a sense. Many person that has done something wrong but doesn't know God, doesn't know his law, never read the Bible, will often say this. I knew it was wrong but I did it anyway. Many an unsafe person will say something to that effect. What have they just proven? What Paul wrote. They are a law unto themselves. You can talk to people who, who haven't much knowledge of God, and they have a sense of right and wrong. We've seen that already before as we study chapter 1. Unless a person is totally mentally incompetent, his heart and his conscience condemn him. He is capable of realizing his obligation to his creator and his fellow human being. We see this borne out in the pages of history and around the world. You know, when we inspect different cultures, and I've told you before, one of my favorite books is The Long War Against God, and it does that, Henry Morris, and uh, just a fantastic book, very deep, but very good, and he exposes cultures around the world. And what we do, when we, what we find is when we study different cultures is this. Every one of them have some sense of sin. 
They may not call it that. They may not call it iniquity, but they have some sense of a right and wrong. Every culture does. Every culture also has some fear of judgment, of some kind of punishment, whether that be at the hands of a higher being or whatever. There's some sense of, "Uh uh-oh, I'm going to be judged for this. Then last but not least, there's also in every one of these cultures some attempt at atoning for sin and appeasing whatever God is out there. You study cultures, you become a history of civilization and those kind of things. You study, you'll start to see concepts that flow through every culture. And one of them is a sense of sin. One of them is a sense of, I'm going to face judgment. If I don't do better, then something's going to happen to me. And then there's also this sense that I need to attempt to atone for my sin. That is why some pagan nations, what do they do? They take a false god and they offer their children as sacrifices. That's the reason why they have offerings of, the, of different seasons so that their crops do well and they'll appease and atone for their sin, appease a greater being. The ultimate conclusion we come to is uh, in this consideration of the judgment of man's deed is simple. Notice it. I put it this way and we're done. There's a universality of guilt. There's a universality of guilt when every man's deeds and works are judged according to and that should be according to the light, sorry, according to the light and revelation they have received. So you take somebody who doesn't have the Bible, who doesn't have the law, and you take a person who has the law and who has God's Word, both of them are deserving of judgment, punishment. It doesn't matter how much light you've given, though you will be judged in accordance to how much light you've been given, but there's a universality of guilt across all of mankind and all humanity. Every culture, every group, uh, people group, you name it, whether you're in church or out of church, whether you just can know God through creation and your conscience, or you can know God through the explicit revelation found in His Word. My friend, you are without excuse. And you know what else you are without excuse from? That if you know God, to live godly and righteously in this present world, you are without excuse, and you will be held accountable to that statement. Next week, we'll finish verse 16, then delve into verses 17 and following. Brother Cliff.